Hello and welcome to Talking Pictures Presents, the bi-weekly film recommendation podcast. My name is Andrew Furlong. This week I will be taking you through a number of films, uh, most of them good, some bad. It will all be revealed when I start reviewing them, I suppose. Um, the first film i seen this week is a documentary called Finding Vivian Mayer. It was directed by John Malouf and this guy was at a local auction house one day looking for pictures to use for a history book about his neighbourhood when he came across some old negatives that he became so impressed with he became determined to find out more about the photographer and her prolific work and this documentary is a real great look at somebody we would never have heard of or more importantly seen the work of if it wasn't for the director um, because despite taking over a hundred thousand images this street photographer uh, Vivian Mayer never showed her pictures to anybody she stored all her pictures away and they would only be found and make her famous after her death this woman uh, was an amazing photographer and could really capture people in a very natural candid way and is now recognized as one of the greatest street photographers of all time uh but at the same time it's so baffling how she kept her work a secret to everybody worked as a nanny most of her life and everyone who knew her had no idea she lived this double life as a woman with a tremendous talent you can tell from her pictures that she was somebody who really understood the human condition and had a real gift And as the director uncovers more about Vivian, we have to make our own conclusions as to why she kept her wonderful work private. Um, Finding Vivian Mayer unfolds in the same kind of tantalising way documentaries like The Imposter and Capturing the Freedmans does. I'm not talking about the subject matter, uh, but more in the way you're taken in by the initial hook then you're almost like the co-detective of the piece, desperate to find out every nugget of information possible to satisfy your curiosity. Uh, Vivian was a, a seemingly ordinary person with an extraordinary talent whose work could have disappeared into obscurity forever if it wasn't unearthed. And it really, ma- it really makes you wonder uh, what other great pieces of art have disappeared over the years because people didn't share their work making it lost forever essentially i think it's a definite uh watch this documentary it's got a lot of different layers to it if you love photography it it will probably inspire you and even if you're not uh, a fan of photography how the documentary is presented it it would never bore you It, it doesn't feel like a long monologue of information like this podcast probably does to some i suppose um the director interviews her friends and the families she works for as well as letting the documentary unfold in a way that makes you feel like you were discovering about vivian this same time as the director so it keeps it exciting um so that documentary is finding vivian uh, meyer the next film I will be reviewing is Birdman. Uh, now, I had heard a hell of a lot of buzz about this movie and I loved the concept of this washed up actor played by Michael Keaton who used to play an iconic superhero but is now a washed up actor and he kind of battles his alter ego that pretty much seems to be the persona of the superhero he used to play that goes by the name of Birdman. 
and all this takes place in the lead up to the opening of his new Broadway play. Um, that's all I knew about Birdman uh, going into it. So I, I was imagining this black comedy with this Batman type superhero influences Michael Keaton's decision in a heroic type of way. Uh, what I didn't know about Birdman, uh, and it goes something like this. Goodfellas, Children of Men, Atonement, Before Sunset, Boogie Nights. Think of any long take tracking shot in the history of cinema and Birdman's entire 119 minute runtime is filled with anything to match that. Edited together to look like a movie that is essentially one take. Birdman is a technical marvel and despite a very good performance by Keaton and Edward Norton pulling out the the best performance in years playing an obnoxious difficult to work with actor basically an over the top version of himself but it is the camera that is really the star of the show I have never seen anything like this after uh, a prolonged one take sequence that would be a masterpiece in its own right following different characters in the Broadway theatre Birdman then takes it up a notch and takes the sequence outside onto a busy street without breaking the camera the whole time it's really something special and the movie is filled with moments like that the camera really is the engine of the movie dictating the pace and the flow of the whole piece weaving together uh, everything seamlessly and that would be part of the problem for some with Birdman it can become an exercise in finding your bearings constantly because it's edited to look like one take sometimes you won't even realize a day has passed until they get to the same rehearsal scene that was due to take place the next day it can be extremely jarring and will test your attention span beyond belief if you aren't here for the camera work basically there's a lot of subtext to Birdman as well and there is something to be said for a film centering around the days leading up to a stage play being shot like the most extravagant stage play imaginable in its own right with Michael Keaton as a lead with split personalities um Birdman suggests that in society nowadays everybody is always giving a performance to some extent and because of how we process media now and mobile phones the camera is always on us to some extent anyway but I just don't know if the plot itself and what Birdman is trying to say will be enough to interest anybody who isn't won over by the wonderful style and technical triumph that is Birdman. It's not like Alfred Hitchcock's uh, movie Rope where the camera is just a cherry on top of an already great movie. In Birdman the camera is the movie. Um, I personally loved it and it is a recommendation but approach with caution if you're looking for something laid back you can unwind to. Uh, it will test you and it is a movie by a filmmaker for filmmakers so a lot of people have been baffled by this movie but um, despite that like I said it's definitely a recommendation for me and I did really enjoy it. How famous do you think you are? Uh, you are way more famous than any of my friends. That's okay. I heard of the national they're from here i'm his brother and i'm supposed to go on their tour bus this is one of the most talked about bands on the planet i think i'm gonna get together with them i'm gonna be making this rock doc i do have a brother but he's more of a metalhead i think he thinks indie rock's pretentious bullshit two weeks ago matt called he asked if i wanted to go on tour and be a roadie 
I had no idea you'd never been to Europe. Welcome to Paris. Ooh, this doesn't even look like my arm. It looks like another person in the room when I do this. Who is that? I just want to have fun on tour. I'm with a rock band. You just need to be careful about not partying. You're not a band member, you're a crew member. Have you done uh, towels? Yes. Water bottles? Yep. Everything's cool? Everything's cool. I need towels and water bottles. The next film I will be reviewing is a documentary also called Mistaken for Strangers and in keeping with the tradition of car crash filmmaking and cult characters like Steve Lips Kudlow in Anvil The Story of Anvil or Mark Bochart in American Movie or, or even something like the rivalry depicted in something like The King of Kong, Mistaken for Strangers is the natural successor to all of that. It's 75 minutes of one unintentional comic genius moment after another with a touching relationship between two brothers at the heart of the story. Um, The guy shooting the documentary is Tom Berenger, who just happens to be the younger brother of Matt Berenger, the lead singer of the band The National, who are this really successful indie rock band. They have had a number three single in the American charts, made the cover of the Rolling Stones and basically tour in massive venues around the world and are are quite famous. I had never heard of them actually, but that won't uh, detract from your enjoyment of this documentary one bit. Because Tom uh, just brings his camera and moonlights as a filmmaker while he's supposed to be there working as a roadie on tour. Much to the annoyance of the band members of the National, including his brother. Um, He's really unprepared and doesn't really know what he's doing. But has access to all these great venues and famous band members due to his brother. uh, Making for a documentary that Rob Reiner would be proud of. Like, he asked them questions such as, how famous are you, or how fast can you play, or or my personal favourite, things like, uh, do you bring your wallet and ID on stage? In another scenario, this could be a comedy starring Jack Black messing up the tour for his brother played by Damien Lewis, but it's not. This is real footage and real people, which makes the relationship between the two brothers much more enjoyable as well. Um, They couldn't be much more different to each other. Tom is this goofy metalhead who drinks loads and even chastises the national for not being rock and roll enough on tour. While Matt is this superstar, supremely confident and seems to have this iron will and self-assurance that has led him to success in the first place. And you get a great window into their sibling relationship in Mistaken for Strangers. It's a great look at how one sibling copes when their brother just happens to be currently one of the most successful people on the planet and what kind of scrutiny that would put on your own life if you had to always compare yourself to that measure of of success mistaken for strangers is funnier than most scripted comedies got a great central character at the heart of the relationship and you don't have to like the nationals music to enjoy the documentary because I personally hated the music. It sounds like the love child of Chris Martin and Bono to me. But I do recommend the documentary itself highly. Uh, so check that one out. Um, the next film i seen this week is John Wick. Starring Keanu Reeves. Directed by the stuntman of Keanu Reeves. Um, Chad Stelsky. Um, IMDB describes it as... A movie starring Keanu Reeves who plays an ex-hitman who was forced to come out of retirement to track down the gangsters that took everything from him. Um, 
actually they didn't really take everything from him because his wife uh, has already died of sickness before the film begins. Uh, so three crooks break into John Wick's house and kill his dog and take his car. So basically they they haven't taken everything from him. They've killed his dog and taken his car. His dog, however, as John Wick will tell you himself, is the only thing that my wife left me to cope with my grief after her death. By taking away the dog, you took away my chance to grieve. So John Wick is extremely annoyed that they killed his dog and took his car. Um, meanwhile, one of the crooks who took the car, played by Alfie Allen, is not able to sell the car because you just don't take John Wick's car. Alfie Allen turns out to be the son of a big mob boss that John Wick used to work for. This complicates matters a lot when John Wick decides to break the concrete in his basement to get all the weapons he used to have and go on a murderous rampage against his former employer. Basically uh, planning on killing every person he comes into contact with because he's so badass. And we know he's a badass not only because he kills people with the consistency of a first person shoot a video game. But also because we are reminded by other characters at all times just how badass and great uh, this John Wick guy really is at his job. Uh, we are reminded by his former mob boss, he's so badass, who seems to be scared shitless of him and tells us John Wick isn't the boogeyman. He's the man you call when you want to kill the boogeyman. Uh, we are reminded by John Leguizamo. Uh, how, how badass he is because he won't buy John Wick's stolen car. Basically, the whole movie was written by somebody who was in love with a man named John Wick and wanted to express that love in the form of an action movie. Like, the film tries to world build by having everybody know who John Wick is in the underworld and in particular, this shady hotel where everybody hangs out. We can tell some people have a different, more friendlier relationship with John Wick because they call him Jonathan instead of John. That, that's very important. Um, the script seems like it was written by a seven-year-old. Uh, this is the kind of script I used to have when I played G.I. Joe as a kid. Basically non-existent, making it up on the spot. And although Keanu Reeves is good and the action sequences themselves are pretty good, they're not bad. Because the whole movie is an exercise in putting over how badass John Wick is, there's no tension. It's a Steven Seagal movie with better choreography and not by much. And I found myself laughing at some of the dialogue quite often in the movie. I don't think the hype surrounding this movie is justified um, and I would be reluctant to recommend this to even fans of the action genre because I was really disappointed at this. This war, we're not winning it. If you speak a word of what I'm about to show you, you will be executed for high treason. It's beautiful. It's the greatest encryption device in history and the Germans use it for all communications. Everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Let me try and we'll know for sure. Mr. Turing, do you know how many died because of it? I don't. Three, while we've been having this conversation. The next film I saw this week is The Imitation Game, which is an historical thriller set during World War II. Um, 
Different to most World War II films, however, this one takes place entirely in England as the brightest minds try to crack the Nazi naval code that was deemed unbreakable at the time, Enigma. It's a race against the clock as each day the Germans reset the code, changing everything in the process, rendering any attempts to crack the code that day useless. Um, the film stars Benedict Cumberbatch as pioneering computer scientist Alan Turing that for all his intellect and knowledge has trouble relating to or communicating with people effectively. And this whole movie hinges on Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. He's an actor I knew was highly thought of, but I never really seen it myself until this movie. He carries the imitation game and elevates everything in the process. A movie about World War II can only be so exciting uh, when it's set in a room for a lot of its running time, especially as we know the outcome of the war itself. And it is surprisingly exciting. Uh, but the complex character of Alan Turing does more than enough to keep your interest and that's all down to Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not going to pretend I know if this character had autism or Asperger's or something like that. But in how he is played he certainly doesn't have any people skills and has trouble dealing with and relating to everyday social situations either way. Uh, we can totally sympathise with the character due to his depiction on screen. Most of the other actors around him in the film don't pull their weight, however, and are pretty poor. And that includes actress Keira Knightley, who was disgracefully nominated for an Academy Award for her performance in this film. Charles Dance has little to do in this movie, but when he's on screen, he shows what a real actor can do just by his presence alone, really. I'm not going to spoil events in the, in the imitation game too much, but... A second element comes into play in this movie besides the code breaking aspect which really adds another layer to things and will leave you feeling angry and with a bitter taste in your mouth long after you watch the movie itself. And it's these events that are arguably more gut wrenching and important than the code breaking aspects of the movie that makes the imitation game much more than your routine thriller. It is an award season Oscar bait movie for sure but that doesn't matter when the film itself doesn't feel like one big exercise in getting the award so it is a recommendation uh, for no other reason than Benedict Cumberbatch's performance which is in contrast to everyone else's performance who look like they might as well be on the set of Downton Abbey in fact one of the actors is from Downton Abbey uh, but having said all that I did get on board with the film and got swept away with it and I found it highly satisfying uh, so that's the imitation game uh, have a look at that movie the next film I seen this week is Warrior starring Nick Nolte Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton and this is a fantastic sports movie. Uh, we have had Hollywood littered with boxing movies in recent years. So it's refreshing to see this one set in the world of UFC mixed martial arts fighting. That's really blown up in the last few years and continues to grow. Um, the movie opens with Tom Hardy showing up at his dad's doorstep. Uh, who's played by Nick Nolte, the king of gruff, and no more so than in this movie. It's clear that they have had a fractured relationship, with Nolte being an alcoholic most of his life, only recently quitting drinking about three years ago, I think it is in the movie. Um, Hardy wants his dad to train him for UFC, 
but still wants nothing to do with him as a person or as a dad. If Nolte is the king of gruff, Hardy is the king of moody skulking and he spends most of this movie with pent up anger that explodes anytime he's in the ring. Meanwhile Hardy's estranged brother played by Joel Edgerton is an ex-UFC fighter now working as a chemistry teacher who's forced back into fighting to stop his house getting taken away from him and his family uh, due to the loans he owns the bank. Uh, this movie is testosterone and pent up emotion cranked up to a thousand and Nolte and Hardy will get all the plaudits but I remember when I was watching the movie I couldn't work out who the brother who the other brother was played by. I got behind this character but felt the actor was a bit bland and figured the actor didn't go on to have much success elsewhere. Um but when I found out it was Joel Edgerton and seen him in movies like The Great Gatsby or Animal Kingdom, you will realise just how good he is at selling his character as an underdog, a kind of ordinary everyman. I thought he was excellent. Uh, eventually both brothers enter into the tournament and because they get equal screen time and backstory up to this point, it makes it harder to figure out who's going to win the tournament or if any of them even will. And that's a great feeling going into a tournament in a sports movie. Unpredictability. While all this is happening, the brothers still have issues. They still seem to hate their dad. This movie is all about feelings, but not about resolving them. Everything will be resolved in the ring. It's much emotional, to coin a phrase. And... It's also one of the best damn sports movies out there. Set in the UFC, which is refreshing to see in its own right. It's a place I didn't know much about. It hasn't been done to death like boxing movies. And it's a movie backed up by the finest actors probably ever assembled in a sports movie. Full stop, really. Everybody is going to love this film. And it will probably make you want to hug or punch a man in your life by the end of the film. It deserves to be in the pantheon of top sports movies for sure and if you haven't seen it i know a lot of people have already um i sure didn't but it, it's an amazing sports movie now i have left the best movie i've seen this week until last and that is the raid 2 directed by garrett evans if this was a classical piece of music it would be the work of mozart if it was a rock concert the audience would have smashed up the place by now in delight if martial arts movies were thought of as highly as ballet, this would be Swan Lake. This is one of the best action movies of all time, period. It makes other martial arts movies look like a 2D Nintendo computer game, a beat-em-up. It, it's so ahead of its time with its choreography. I don't even care about hyping this movie up because it, it just won't let you down. It's got fight scenes in here that would make any top 3 fighting scenes list of all time just from this movie alone. The Raid 2 is something special and this comes from somebody who was less than impressed by the first Raid. I don't know if it was because I seen Dread first and it follows the same trajectory as Dread. I respect the first Raid but it was quite bored at times I would have to admit. But the Raid 2 is, is the Departed meets the Matrix minus the sci-fi. It's spectacular. It starts straight after the events of the first Raid. It has our hero going undercover to infiltrate th this criminal gang. So he secretly goes to prison to gain their trust as one of them. But before we know it, it's three years later and things really start to kick off. And this is all in the first 40 minutes or something like that. This is the dark night of sequels. Every bit of greatness 
that was even hinted at in the first movie comes to fruition in The Raid 2. It is quite literally the greatest directed action movie I've ever seen and that's no exaggeration. In fact only Garrett Evans should be allowed to touch the action genre from now on. He owns it so much. Well him and the lead actor in this Iko Uwas. God my Irish tongue is really being tested by all the names I've had to pronounce in this episode. But anyway you know what? Big fight scenes in almost every other movie. They follow a pattern. The hero gets his ass kicked. Then he gets a few blocks in. Gets a few more punches. And you can feel a turning point in the fight. Some of the fights in the Raid 2. I couldn't predict the fight pattern. And as a result. I felt like anything could happen. I couldn't get a grasp on the fight. It was frantic. This is how fight scenes should be and this is the benchmark. Hollywood is just lazy after this movie. It doesn't rely on CGI. This is an old fashioned action fest at its best. There's some great touches too. Um, like a henchman who becomes a sacrificial lamb in one scene. This guy would only be given two minutes screen time before getting killed in other movies. But in this movie we get about a 20 minute detour following the character, learning a bit about his life and his background, making the scenes that follow more emotional than they ever had a right to be. The film even manages to assemble a deadly opposition not to be messed with quicker than Breaking Bad managed to do with Jack and his gang in the final season. The only difference is the Raid 2 manages to do it in about an hour. This movie immediately got inducted into my top 100 movies of all time ever seen without hesitation once I finished watching it. If that's not a recommendation I don't know what is. Uh, um, if you wanted to not watch The Raid 1 and go straight to The Raid 2 you could probably get away with doing that too if you insisted. Um, but maybe you just want to check them out one after the other. But uh, The Raid 2 is a real step up from the first one and a real step up from any action movie you'll ever see. Every episode we end the show by playing a game called Kevin's Bacon Sandwich where we link actors based on the movies they were in. So for instance last week's question was link Mark Duplass to J.K. Simmons. Uh, Mark Duplass was in Your Sister's Sister with Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt was in The Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was in Born on the 4th of July with William Dafoe. William Dafoe was in Spider-Man 2 with J.K. Simmons. Um, so this week's question is link Joel Edgerton to Michael Keaton. Um, that's it for this week. Um, thanks for listening, if anybody did. Um, I'll be back in two weeks' time with more film recommendations. Uh, my name is Andrew Furlong and good night.